So this is Guy Spear, and I'm with Brian Murray of Glancy, Prongy, and Murray. So he's one of the named partners of the firm. And Brian, I am really grateful that you've taken the time to teach me and some of the other people about some of the subtleties about the work that you do. So I guess I'm going to start by just asking you to introduce yourself as if you were introducing yourself to uh, somebody, a stranger who's walked into your conference room, let's just imagine brought in by me, who might be a future client. And I'm sure you've done that many times. So how would you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Brian Murray. Uh, as Guy said, I'm a partner in Glancy, Prange and Murray. We are a class action litigation firm with offices in New York, where I work, and Los Angeles, where the rest of the firm works. Proportionately, it's probably about three quarters in Los Angeles, one quarter in New York. The work we do is, as I said, class action litigation. So that means we represent a person or business that has been somehow aggrieved by a wrongdoer, and they have a claim that is not sufficiently large uh, to bring economically, uh, individually, as their own case, but they can aggregate their claim with the claims of everybody else who has been harmed in the same way and bring what in the United States we call a class action. And as part of the class, all those claims put together have enough economic viability to bring a suit. So in real terms, what this means is uh, you're a customer at a bank, for instance, and the bank on every monthly statement just takes a dollar out of your account for no reason. And there's no explanation. They just say, this is a dollar we want to take from your account. So as an individual, or maybe you're a business with an account there, it doesn't matter, uh, whoever you are, what can you do? You're certainly not going to bring a lawsuit to get back a dollar. Uh, it costs at least that much uh, to file. The United States, anywhere from $150 to $450 just to file a suit. Certainly no lawyer is going to take it, even on a contingency, to get his 33 cents out of your dollar claim. But let's say they have 40 million customers. Now they've stolen, uh, in the aggregate, $40 million from everybody. So a $40 million case is certainly worth the filing fee. You can certainly find a lawyer that will take it on a contingency to get you know, up to a third of that $40 million. And if you need to hire experts, in, uh, in this case, you probably wouldn't. But in many of the cases we bring, experts are necessary. In our securities cases, in our antitrust cases, to prove damages, to prove wrongdoing, et cetera, an expert bill can easily be in the seven figures. But if 40 million people are robbed of a dollar each, you can afford a million dollars for an expert as part of your cost of the case. So we bring these cases as class actions to get the money back for the people who were harmed. And also, as I'm sure we're going to discuss a little later on the podcast, as a deterrent for uh, the wrongdoer to keep doing such wrong things in the future. A great benefit of the class action is companies know that they can't just keep ripping off people for small amounts of money and essentially be judgment proof. I mean, 
uh, judgment proof is the wrong term. That usually means you can't pay. I mean, they can pay. Let's, let's say they won't be lawsuit proof because nobody's going to bring the suit, like I said, for a dollar. But in the United States, we have the class action mechanism, and it becomes a $40 million case. And people bring them, and lawyers bring them through firms such as my own. Brian, thank you so much. And I, I have no doubt that you've had plenty of opportunities to have to explain this to family members, uh, children. But and I'm, I, I learned quite a bit. I'm still in a, a rube, but I'm not a professional in the business. But uh, before we get to class action, and I want to dive into classes, there's another idea, which is actually was new to me, and I'm not even sure how prevalent it is in the UK, which is the legal system that I grew up in, which is the concept of a contingency. To take a case on a contingency, most of us, when we work with lawyers, it's some kind of agreed rate. But then I guess you will, you'll tell me there's a very tiny proportion of lawyers who only work on a contingency, whether it's for a class or if it's for an individual. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of contingency cases and also how the law developed to allow lawyers to take cases on a contingency? Because in a certain way, when you take a case on a contingency, you become a partner with the plaintiff. And I think that some, many legal systems don't actually recognize the standing of the law firm to do that. The US, I know, does. Maybe some others do. I know you know it much better than I do. To be honest... I'm not that familiar with the history of how it developed. Uh, certainly, I'm aware of the dichotomy between the U.S. system and the British system. I, I know they don't have the contingency fees as we have them in the United States. And obviously, our United States legal system grew out of the common law of the United Kingdom. So I, I don't know where uh, they started to diverge and we started to allow contingency fees. As you said, when a lawyer works on contingency, his interest is aligned with the client's interest, which in the United States review is a good thing because the guy working on an hourly rate will keep working on an hourly rate as long as he's getting paid. It doesn't matter if he's winning or losing. If you're working on a contingency, yeah, you're really only interested in winning. I mean, you're not going to keep pursuing the loser case. Uh, you're not going to bring frivolous cases. and one of the great uh, myths that has arisen in the United States is that, oh, these contingency lawyers keep bringing frivolous cases. And I got to tell you, a contingency lawyer has zero interest in bringing a frivolous case because more often than not, when I say more often than not, you know, I mean 90% or 95% of the time, you just lose because it's frivolous. The judges aren't stupid, uh, so your case is going to get thrown out at some point down the line. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to get into this later. There are many procedural points where you can lose. Well, we were talking about class actions in particular, but any contingency case as well. There are different pressure points, and a plaintiff has to win at every single one of those junctions. And your case can get thrown out at many places along the line. And to bring a frivolous case and to spend your time and as I said at the top of the podcast, your money, because the contingency lawyer is fronting all the expenses as well. So that million dollar expert uh, that's being hired for the case is being paid for by my million dollars. It's not the client's money. 
It's my actual money that goes to pay the expert. So why in the world would I bring a frivolous case, pay an expert a million dollars, and then never get my million dollars back? Forget about losing my time. I've lost a million dollars cash. So back to the you know point that I started on, you know, we view aligning the client's interest and the lawyer's interest as a good thing because they're all on the same page and they're only going to bring a good case with merit and pursue your meritorious cases to the end. The bad cases, nobody's going to have an interest in bringing in the first place. I'm not sure exactly what the law of partnership is in Great Britain. In the United States, only lawyers can be partners in law firms. I don't know if in the UK they allow non-lawyers or what we call lawyers, you would call barristers and solicitors. I'm not sure if they can have an interest in the law firm per se. I know barristers kind of work for themselves. I know solicitors are more like what we call a law firm here in the States. But we do not allow non-lawyers to participate in the profits of a partnership of a law firm here. So it's not a case where an outside person can buy an interest uh, necessarily in somebody else's case. Only the lawyer or the law firm actually working on the case can have an interest in that case. Now, a really interesting rabbit hole to go down on this would be the litigation funding phenomenon that has popped up in the last 10 years or so. It's funny, I, I had that down as one of my topics to cover. But just for your interest, Brian, I would say that I had not come across class action lawyers until I was forced to spend time around Delaware in a famous case called Horsehead. And um, But my experience of discussions after the end of that case with your firm and with others is that actually uh, the the lawyers who take cases on contingency are the most entrepreneurial, clearly, but also know the law the best, are usually some of the best practitioners and are the most business-like and hard-nosed about evaluating things. So if you have a lawyer who's being paid by the hour, his job is to please the client. And pleasing the client may not involve getting even the client's best interests served, uh, and it may not necessarily involve winning. It just means meeting some perception in the eyes of the client as to what is a good outcome. Whereas if you're a contingency lawyer, the only thing that counts is winning. <laughs> so I've found that the lawyers who work in the contingency space are hard-nosed, accurate, and for what it's worth, and just to make Brian's point for the listener, is that I was blown away through my time in Delaware and Horsehead as to how small a world it is. Every lawyer in that Delaware court system has met every other lawyer. They all know the judges. They all know each other. They know each other by first names. And so the reputational, each lawyer has a reputation with the judge and the judges have a reputation with the lawyers. So there's enormous small world self-policing effect that takes place in terms of bringing frivolous cases. I mean, everybody knows what everybody's brought and how they did in front of the judge, basically. So uh, you could bring a frivolous case two or three times, I suspect. And then um, a judge is probably, your clients aren't going to come to you because they know that the judge is going to look leerily at any new case that you bring, given your recent history. So, so, So let's dive from that into 
classes. And I, I didn't think about how it's, it's actually the economics of who can sue that creates the interest for the class. And I guess the two most famous classes after our last conversation, Brian, uh, I thought about one is the class of asbestos sufferers, people who've suffered from asbestosis, I guess. And the other class is the tobacco class. And, and actually, I mean, the, the damages to some members of the tobacco class are rather large. So I guess what I wanted to check in with you, and I actually don't know the answer to this, do you specialize in classes that are related to securities law, or would you do other classes as well? Uh, okay, that's actually uh, a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why, I don't know. And you can't say trick question without me mentioning my favorite movie, uh, or my family's favorite movie, which is um, uh, The Murder Case in the South. Why am I forgetting it? Uh, my cousin, Vinny. Yeah. You can't say trick question around law and not, not have me bring up Brian, uh, my cousin, Vinny. But Brian, tell me why it's a trick question. Okay. Well, first of all, just to answer your question on its face, uh, we bring many types of class actions, uh, securities class actions, uh, antitrust, or what in Europe they might call competition law, uh, class actions, uh, consumer class actions, uh, based on the products. What you were talking about, so this is why it's a trick question, and not just because the, uh, the differential on the rear axis on, on a certain kind of car. <laughs> I'm glad you know the details of that movie. That's important. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, well, you brought up the asbestos cases and the tobacco cases. Uh, those are not what we call class actions uh, here in the United States. Uh, that is a different kind of case, which is what we call a mass action or uh, commonly called a mass tort. The reason those are not class actions are because each case is so individual specific with regard to the facts and the damages. So it's not easily made into a class. And I think later on, we may start talking about Robin Hood and we'll get uh, more into what makes a class and how you can define one. But just using asbestos right now for the example, each person's asbestos experience is different. So how they were exposed to the asbestos, how long they were exposed, where they were exposed, and in particular, uh, how it manifested itself through their injury. Did they get lung cancer, which is one of the most common ways of getting it, but then how did that lung cancer develop? How did it harm that individual person? Did he have to have surgery? Did he die? Uh, different details like that. That makes it really not practicable as a class action because for a class action, you need a common nucleus of facts. And you know, obviously there are certain common facts in an asbestos case, such as, you know, the most basic question in any mass tort is, you know, does this product cause damage in a human being? You know, what we call the you know, causation issue. You know, does, uh, does asbestos cause lung cancer? Can uh, a breast implant, you know, somehow uh, cause breast cancer? Things like that. You know, can, can talcum powder uh, cause cancer, which is a a current mass tort. Uh, so certainly you have certain common issues with regard to the overall causation, but you have way too many individual issues with regard to the usage, 
and the individual damages to make it a viable class action. So that's why we call these mass actions, because they get massed together. They're all individual cases. It's all John or Jane Doe versus, you know, Big Evil Corporation, Inc. But uh, they each have their individual case. Like I said, there are certain common issues. So they get massed together. We have what's called a bellwether trial or trials sometimes, which will determine what can be determined on, on a common basis, such as the causation. You know, did, did the drug you took cause a birth defect? You know, well, certainly that's going to be common to all of these mass action people in that particular mass action. So you can determine certain common issues, but then each case still has to be prosecuted individually. When did you take the drug? How long did you take the drug? How did uh, that injury manifest itself in you? How many doctors did you go to? How many surgeries did you have? All of that is individual. So in the end, it breaks down into individual cases with certain common issues. So those are mass actions, not what we call class actions. But they, they do have that the common feature with class actions that they allow you to explore scale economies. So it's a, it's a, so there's sufficiently common facts across the mass action suit that allow one law firm to pursue something in front of the judge on behalf of all those people together, even if afterwards it's each individual set of facts. Okay, so mass actions are their own uh, particular kind of organism. So <laughs> it's not a class action in this uh, structure where in a class action you have one lead plaintiff who represents the rest of the class and you have one law firm or maybe a couple of law firms that are running the whole case, sometimes with the help of other law firms as well that they utilize as they see fit. So basically it's one, two or three law firms running the whole show. Mass actions are massive. <laughs> If you want to look at it that way. So you have tens of thousands of cases, you know, typically in a mass action. And you have a, the only way to put it, it would be a, to say a consortium of law firms doing the whole thing. Typically, uh, the judge who is overseeing the mass action will appoint what's called the plaintiff's steering committee. And that will be, say, five or six firms that have the most cases. And when I say the most, anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 cases that that particular, each firm has, you know, in their portfolio of cases. And then uh, under that, you know, rubric, you have every other firm. So they bring all these cases together. And there's what's called the common issues and, and the common benefits. Like I said, that would be causation type stuff and expert type stuff. So they... All of these firms, and it's a gigantic consortium in these cases, will pool their resources together to pay for the experts to decide these common issues. So as you can see, Brian knows a lot more than I will ever know about mass actions and class actions. Just by way of background, um, I came to Brian Murray because I'd come to the end of a bankruptcy suit in which I was the chairman of the, the equity committee. We lost our equity. We felt there'd been wrongdoing. And we actually, I don't know if you know this, Brian, we looked at contingency law firms. I think there were a number of law firms in touch with us who uh, they didn't take the contingency case. And I was a significant shareholder, so there might have been a contingency case there. 
And I am extraordinarily grateful for the fact that American securities law and law in general allows for this kind of action to go forwards because it allowed uh, us to learn more about what had happened. It allowed us to pursue our sense of injustice in an aggregate way through the fact that Glancy took the case and otherwise we would not have been able to do it. The The reason why I got in touch with Brian was because I was very curious to see, having experienced the benefits of the class action system, not that I'm a shareholder in GameStop, but I wanted to see what was the possibility that this would turn into a class action suit. And so uh, I was lucky enough to get Brian to do some research for me for free. <laughs> Not that he did a lot of it, but he knows a lot more than I do. And so, so Brian, why don't you just take us through, if I were an aggrieved GameStop investor who's a client of Robin Hood, who felt like it was going to the moon, but then for a key period of two or three days, Robin Hood didn't allow me to buy the stock. And now I'm super upset. And we have uh, Mr. Portnoy, who says that all the people at Robin Hood and Citadel and everywhere else should go to jail. And so we're all feeling rabble-roused, if you like. And so that seemed to me to be a perfect opportunity for the class action firm to take up the cause. And I'm curious to... And, and I guess uh, maybe before we get there, I'd love to know how you evaluate what cases you engage in and what you don't. I mean. Your firm has a, has a limited amount of time, limited amount of resources, and you have to decide which cases you take. So before we get to Robin Hood, what is your process of review? Uh, well, that's a great question. So, you know, I, meeting with another lawyer had to be more than a year ago. It was just pre-COVID at this point. <laughs> but uh, we're talking about you know, various cases and opportunities to work together. And at a certain point, you know, in the meeting, he said, so basically, most of your job is looking at cases and trying to figure out which ones are viable and which ones are worth bringing. And the answer is yes, that, that is a, a great part of uh, what I do as a partner in the firm. There are a whole bunch of things, you know, to look at when evaluating a case. You know, first is uh, basically just, you know, liability. Did they do something wrong? I mean, if we, if we can't prove that they did something wrong and that somebody was harmed as a result, then, then there's just no case. So, uh, you know, the first, you know, first thing is just then the facts, you know, what did they do and why is it wrong? You know, not just morally wrong. Why is it wrong under the laws of the United States where we're going to bring the case? You as a you know, international financier, I'm sure are familiar with the LIBOR case. Anyone who doesn't know what I just said, LIBOR is the London Interbank Offering Rate, a, a borrowing metric which is set by a bunch of banks in London uh, where they get together and decide at what rate they're going to loan money to each other. And that rate is used as a benchmark for many things uh, throughout the world. So at a certain point, these guys got together and they were just uh, colluding to fix the rate at you know, something you know, lower than what it should, or sometimes higher. And what it should have been, uh, because they didn't want to look bad to their peers, like, oh, we'll take the money at X, we're not in bad shape, uh, whatever. And there were many, many, many cases brought about LIBOR. And the presiding judge in the case 
in the Southern District of New York at one point said, they certainly did something wrong. But my question is, is it wrong under the laws of the United States? So, you know, you can do things that are morally reprehensible, not necessarily legally punishable. So we have to hook up the facts to the law and make sure there's actually a viable case. Then we have to see if there's a venue to bring the case, you know, can we bring the case in the United States? You know, sometimes they do wrong things that affect people in the United States, but the wrongdoing, you know, just picking a venue, you know, out of nowhere, you know, is in Vienna. You know, that's the nexus of the, the, the wrong acts. Well, maybe then we can't bring the case in the United States. So we have to make sure we have a basis for jurisdiction here. You have to make sure there's a source of recovery. You know, do they have assets? You know, they, you could be the, the worst person in the world and the worst actor and, you know, steal a billion dollars from people. But if you, well, I was going to say Bitcoin, that would have been a good investment. <laughs> yeah. Let's say you made a bad investment with your billion dollars and it's, it's, it's disappeared. There's no more billion dollars. Well, you did a billion dollars worth of wrong, but there's no way for anybody to get the billion dollars back. So there's no point bringing that lawsuit. So I guess to sum it up, a combination of things, you know, wrongdoing, legal liability, jurisdiction, and uh, assets from which we can recover. What, what th- That list that you went through, Brian, just reminds me of what you said in the first call that we had. and um, And you brought up just now is that in order for you to take the case and to decide to try and win is that you have to be able to see your path through multiple hurdles. And each one of those hurdles in, in I probably in many cases is not obvious and is a significant hurdle to overcome. I mean, merely ascertaining that there's the assets available because they might be hidden or ascertaining the facts as to whether there's wrongdoing. I mean, each one of these things, and it's not just ascertaining them for your benefit, it's that a judge in an open court has to be able to see it. And later on, I, I want to, I, I, you know, this idea that you just realize when you get into the, I realize when I get into the plumbing of the legal system is how, you know, you sort of think of, those of us who don't work in the legal system think of it as being about justice. When you get into the plumbing you realize that, that justice is some kind of faraway concept because you've got all these other things. By the way, I do hope that if in your hypothetical case of somebody stealing a billion dollars, that even if there weren't any recoverable assets, that it would be a criminal case. And I would hope that somebody would be able to take it up as a criminal case. But let's dive into Robin Hood. I mean, we just know the facts that are in the public. And let's just imagine for a second that a friend of mine has wheeled me into your office and I don't own, have never owned, I'm not a client of Robin Hood. I don't own any GameStop. I'm not short GameStop, not any of those things. But if I were, and I come into your office, and for one reason or another, you're forced to spend some time with me being kind. And I say, Mr. Murray, I'm sure there's a case here. Please could you bring, start the work on a class action lawsuit? How would you respond? Okay, uh, in two ways, you know. You used the word ascertain a couple of times when you were summarizing what I said. And one thing I left out of uh, my analysis of what we look at to decide if we can bring a class action is the ascertainability of a class. So to have a well-defined class. But uh, I'll get back to that in a second. But the first thing I would say to the potential Robin Hood client 
is that we have to go back in time about 20 years to explain why they don't have a case against Robin Hood. So 20 years ago, and this involves the telephone industry, people started getting cell phones more than 20 years ago. Uh, let's go back to 1995, however many years that was. Cell phone companies had different plans and, you know, you got certain minutes. This is before everybody had an unlimited plan. You get something, you know, 60 minutes a month, 100 minutes a month, and they would bundle them and then they would roll them over. And a very enterprising lawyer, as you said, uh, class action lawyers are entrepreneurs. This guy is a particularly inventive entrepreneur named Paul Whalen who's a solo practitioner, but he realized that these AT&T was bundling the minutes uh, in a way that cheated their customers. So he brought a lawsuit against AT&T. AT&T immediately recognized what they were doing was probably not right, so they settled the case. He received a $3 million fee for bringing the case. And AT&T quickly realized that uh, this was not a good thing for AT&T. <laughs> That, that a guy, uh, you know, a clever guy like Paul Whalen can figure out a particular act of wrongdoing and stick them for a $3 million legal bill. So pretty soon after this case settled, arbitration clauses started popping up in various telephone contracts. So you could no longer bring a class action like Paul Whalen did on behalf of his client. You had to bring an arbitration before, you know, one of the various uh, arbitrable forums, you know, whether AAA or uh, there are various others in the United States. So you can't bring a federal lawsuit anymore or even a state lawsuit. You have to bring your case as an arbitration. So now you're out of court. They then quickly caught on and said, because guys said, all right, you want me to bring an arbitration? Fine. I'm going to bring an arbitration on behalf of everybody in the class. So in addition to arbitration clauses, they started adding no class arbitration clauses. So not only do you have to bring your case uh, as an arbitration, but you can't bring it on behalf of anybody else. Everybody has to bring a single individual arbitration. And at first, these clauses were particularly onerous. They were upheld by the United States Supreme Court, but they've evolved over time to be a, a little bit more fair to the person usually the company has to pay the fees of the arbitration, things like that. But still, you have to bring your own individual arbitration and you can't bring a class action and you can't bring in a, a court case, period. So from that tiny seed that started in Peck versus AT&T, we now have arbitration clauses everywhere in the United States. Anywhere they can be, they are <laughs> pretty much. And one of the cases they can be and are, are in uh, your brokerage agreement. So every brokerage agreement that a customer signs now with their brokerage will contain an arbitration clause and say, I give up any right to bring a case in a state or federal court and any grievance I have will be brought by arbitration and it will not be brought as a class arbitration, just as an individual arbitration. Basically, if you have a grievance against your brokerage, like Robinhood, you're out of court for the moment that you've signed to that agreement and opened an account with them. And there are various ways that they slip this account in, uh, this arbitration clause in, sorry. 
Uh, it could be what's called a click wrap or browse wrap. So you set up your account online and you know you click on something that says I've read all the all the terms. You know that's uh, another hot link that if you choose to you can click on or not. But somewhere in there there's going to be an arbitration clause. So. Uh, your friend that comes into my office and says, I have a Robinhood account and I want to sue them. Uh, my answer to him has to be, well, you have to bring an arbitration. So I hope that you've lost enough money <laughs> that it's worthwhile to bring your own individual case. Otherwise, it's not worth bringing at all, unfortunately. That's problem A. Now, let's get back to ascertainability. Let's assume there is no arbitration clause in an ideal world. And that's not the one we live in. But you can, by some miracle, you know, you you signed your Robinhood account and you crossed out everything that said, I agree with an arbitration clause and you mailed it back to Robinhood. And they said, OK, we'll still open your account. Uh, that's complete fantasy. But let's suppose you can bring a case. Among the things you have to prove in a class action is that you have a definable and ascertainable class. So who would be in this class of people who want to sue Robinhood? It would be people who say, well, I was going to buy Robinhood stock, and I couldn't. They, they, they took that option off of the website. There was no way, you know, I, I saw this thing going up, 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 and, you know, it was, it was at 30, then 50, 100, and I said, I want to get in at 150. And, you know, I went onto the website one day, and I'm, you know, I'm going to put in my buy order at 150 or whatever this price was that day. And I just can't. There's no option to buy GameStop. Okay, here's the problem with bringing this as a class action. Since they don't take orders by telephone, they don't take orders by fax, they don't take orders by email, the only way to do it is online. You can't prove that you were going to buy the stock at 150. Well, the only way to prove it would be by an individual affidavit saying, I fully intended to go online and buy the stock at 150. And in an individual case, that's fine. But as a class action, you can't have 2 million people putting in affidavits because now it's no longer efficient and practicable to bring us class because you have a judge looking at 2 million affidavits. And that's really not how he wants or her wants to spend their time. So that's only on the front end, proving you're even in the class to begin with. Now you have to get to the back end of the class. Well, how was I damaged? Well, I was going to buy at 150 and I fully intended to sell at 250. So now you have another 2 million affidavits. So everybody's saying when they were going to sell. And everybody's not going to sell at 250. So you have you know, a handful of affidavits. I was going to sell immediately at 151, 152, 175, 200, 250, whatever. You can't really prove what your damages are. So it's just not at all practical as a class action even if you could bring a class action with you, which you can't against Robinhood for that. Now, that's for, let's say, a breach of contract, a breach of fiduciary duty, however you want to style what they did wrong to you. The gist of this antitrust class action is that Robinhood and a bunch of other online brokers and hedge funds engaged in a conspiracy and acted in concert to stop the purchases of GameStop, I guess, in essence, to help out the hedge funds who were short uh, so that the price could stop going up. And those are the allegations of that case. Now, since they're not suing 
you know, Robinhood necessarily vis-a-vis -vis as a customer. I mean, somebody might be a customer of Robinhood, but it's not really a customer class action. It's you know, just alleging there was a big antitrust conspiracy, so you may or may not be a customer of Robinhood or, or another broker. You could be anybody. Of course, you still have the problems that I discussed with the ascertainability of the class. So it, it, you may have been harmed as a result of an antitrust conspiracy, not as a result of breach of contract with your broker. But still, how do you prove that you were going to buy at a certain price, sell at a certain price, et cetera? More than that, you just have, going back to what I said when you, you know, evaluate the possible class action, the liability issue. How are we going to prove that all these people actually engaged in a conspiracy and acted in concert? Now, in, in the antitrust laws, there's a concept known as conscious parallelism. So basically saying, well, it's suspicious when everybody does the same thing at the same time. <laughs> so everybody decides, let's stop letting people buy GameStop. So, you know, why are they doing that? Well, it's you know, kind of you know, suspicious on its face. That alone is not enough. You usually need what the court will refer to as plus factors, you know, something in addition to the conscious parallelism. So, you know, for instance, do they all engage in this conscious parallelism after they had a gigantic conference call together? And we don't know what was said on the conference call yet, but we do know that they had, you know, a conference call, you know, just making something up. That would be a plus factor. Or was there a gigantic banquet at the you know, Sheraton Hotel somewhere uh, where, where all these actors were together in the same room at the same time? And then three days later, started acting in concert, something like that. You know, something like that would be a plus factor. So now I have not read the complaint of this case. So I don't know if they're alleging plus factors, if any, or what they are. But you need facts like that you know, now or certainly down the line to be able to bring that case, unless you can bring out, you know, actual facts, you know, you get you know, an email from somebody, hey, I've got a good idea, you know, let's, let's all stop, you know, allowing people to buy GameStop so the price goes down. Well, that would be a great email if you could find yeah. it somewhere. I think that but, uh, um, the, uh, and, and, you know, I've, as from some of our other interactions, uh, I'm super interested in conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> that are not provable. And uh, in this case, the little that I know of the way securities firms operate is that they would have had legitimate reasons for wanting to stop the part. So it's, it's complex. There may have been some of their own brethren that might go under if this didn't go, come to an end. But, they, but, but you know, Robin Hood themselves had issues on their balance sheet that meant that they could have taken the action. It so happened that the action that they took help their brethren elsewhere on the street cover their shorts, but it also helped them with their own balance sheet. And they were perfectly within their rights to take action to protect their own balance sheet. They, their business is to primarily to protect their balance sheet, not to help a bunch of Wall Street bets guys take out some big hedge funds. <laughs> so. Well, you know, that's an excellent point. And certainly that's something that they're going to point to as a defense. They're going to say, we weren't doing this as part of a grand conspiracy, even yeah. though that's what you say. We were just doing this out of our own, you know, self-interest. Yeah. You know, we had a limited business reason to do it, and we did. I mean, you know, companies say that constantly in these kind of cases. You know, oh yeah, no, we had we had other reasons for doing it, not 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 the bad reasons you say. Right. Now we have this amazing phenomenon that both Ted Cruz and AOC 
we're on the side of the Wall Street bets guys, obviously interested in the potential to gain votes from them. And is there, when you bring Congress into the picture, I mean, these arbitration clauses feel to me, I'm going to bring up a term that you'll actually explain to the listener what it means. They seem to be in restraint of trade. Isn't it possible for Congress, at least prospectively, to legislate away the ability of firms to do this, to protect themselves? To, I mean, the whole point of the class action is to take everybody who's lost a dollar and aggregate them up. And by forcing individual arbitration, you're taking everybody who's lost a dollar and saying they can't form a class. And isn't Congress able to just say, no, you can't do that? <laughs> sure. Congress is absolutely able to do that. They can say you can't have arbitration clauses, you know, generally that they can say you can't have them in you know, specific, you know, you can't have them in consumer contracts. You can't have them in whatever, you know, they can legislate whatever they want, you know, certainly. The issue is getting Congress to do it, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe this will be an impetus to have them take them out of brokerage, brokerage contracts, in, you know, in particular. Yeah. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is an incredibly powerful lobbying organization, and they are, you know, so let's go back to, you know, Peck versus AT&T in 1995. You know, who was harmed by the lack of an arbitration clause in that contract? Well, a huge company, AT&T. So, you know, who drives, you know, business and business legislation in the United States? Huge companies. <laughs> so, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce is strongly on the side of arbitration clauses, and they strongly lobby Congress to continue to allow these right. arbitration clauses. Now, just to digress for a second, so there's... Uh, like I said, there's been many cases in the United States involving, you know, whether these arbitration clauses should be upheld or not upheld. One case which has gone up and down from the district court to the circuit court to the Supreme Court and then back down and back up and back down is a case involving uh, American Express. It's a case between the merchants who accept American Express and American Express. And there were arbitration clauses, naturally. <laughs> that Amex insisted on having in their contracts after a certain point with their merchants. And they said, well, you can't bring this as a class action because merchants have arbitration clauses. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce put in briefs as a friend of the court uh, in favor of American Express, in favor of the arbitration clauses. And uh, I don't know who said it, but I thought it was an excellent point. And they said, well, who does the U.S. Chamber of Commerce really represent? You know, big business or small business, because this is not a case of, you know, me, you know, individual consumer suing Amex on my Amex contract. This is a, a business. They're all businesses that are in the proposed class in the American Express case. So, you know, this is a case of arbitration clauses for the benefit of big business to the detriment of small business. But the point is, uh, you know, who does Congress usually answer to? You know, the answer is big business. Yeah. So getting them to take these arbitration clauses out is going to be difficult. Now, it may be that there's be such an uproar over this Robin Hood thing. They'll take them out of uh, a limited, you know, sector uh, of arbitration clauses just for brokerage uh, clauses. And who knows? It's a real uphill battle. <laughs> I don't know how closely you're following the Robin Hood cases or case. But what is your best sense of how, I mean, 
it seems pretty clear that any attempts to pursue wrongdoing in the courts, other than this antitrust, but even the antitrust will be very, very hard to prove if they make any progress with it. Will this issue just die, do you think? Can you get a sense of whether Congress will actually take it up in a real way or they'll find some other way to bring it to the fore? I think that on our last conversation, I said that I didn't think that the anger of 8 million Wall Street bets members on Reddit was going to dissipate on its own. But I don't know, you may have a different sense. You may have other experiences. Well, it won't dissipate on its own, but it will dissipate for other reasons. I mean, they'll find something else to be mad about. Right. Uh, Congress will find something else to be concerned about. I think one thing we spoke about on the call is, you know, if, if a class action or a private lawsuit is not really viable, what else can be done? Well, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice or different state attorney general's offices are not constrained by the problems of arbitration clauses or class ascertainability. The state AG brings a case and they don't have a class. They're not a client. So there's no contract between them and Robinhood. So they can certainly uh, bring some kind of action and try to get justice for the people. Now, one of the problems is, you know, there are different remedies that are available to the state or the federal office that brings these cases, often the wrongdoer just gets fined. So there's a lot of money paid, but it goes to the U.S. government. It's not necessarily a restitution fund that's going to be kicked back to the various people. But again, so now let's, let's say they didn't want to have a restitution fund. Now we get into the same problems we had when we're talking about the class ascertainability. Well, who are they going to give it to? Mm. <laughs> you know, they got to decide, you know, how much each person gets and whether they're even entitled to it. So, and, if and, they wanted to have a restitution fund, they would, they'd have problems. So, it would just be money going back to the government as a fine, probably. And they would only be able to pursue a criminal case. Is that not right? Or can they? Can the DOJ pursue um, civil cases? Uh, they can pursue civil cases. They can. So it doesn't okay. necessarily have to be criminal. But like I said, they'll put the hurt on Robin Hood in some way if they yeah. decide to do it, but it's not going to put money back in the pockets of the people who got hurt. And it seems Robin. to me that, that those those departments, so the DOJ, attorneys general in the States, the SEC, I mean, it's sort of, it's, I feel that it's kind of hit and miss what they pick up and what they don't. So there's a kind of a weird combination of politics and other things that conspire to make them pursue somebody or not, or pursue an issue or not. So we were saying that, or I was asking you about the potential politicization or the fact that I see that people like attorneys general, SEC, Department of Justice are kind of idiosyncratic in the way that they pursue cases. And perhaps it's unfair to say that it's politically motivated, but it's idiosyncratic. If you're an aggrieved person, and for one reason or another, you can't find your way through a class action suit or a contingency suit, it's hit or miss whether the DOJ is going to take your case or not. And you can't call up the DOJ and say, I've got a great case, you really ought to take it. You know, you might be able to interest a newspaper or you might be able to interest a member of Congress. And I guess it does feed into uh, my third to last question, and then there's two and one, and then uh, we'll be over, is that what I've learned, you kind of have this idea that justice will be served 
And the answer is that the law is extraordinarily imperfect. There are just so many ways in which the law cannot. I mean, there are so many cases that you don't take. I suspect you see many where you see a very aggrieved plaintiff. If you had to guess, you would say, yeah, probably something was done wrong, but I can't prove it, or the law doesn't allow me, or there's an arbitration clause. How, what would you tell people like that? So people who've suffered a wrong, likely suffered a wrong, that they're never going to win in court. What's the answer to them? And they kind of show up in your office and say, but I thought the law was about justice and I have rights and those people did something bad and I've suffered damages and many people like me have suffered damages. And, you know, you guys are about justice and why can't I get my justice? Well, you know, all you can tell those people is that sometimes the law sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Uh, it does not say what you want it to say and cannot do what you want it to do. You know, many potential clients or actual clients come to me, you know, with, with problems and they're like, just use securities cases as an example. They're like, oh, but you know, I lost all this money. And, you know, I'll explain to them, well, you know, the law of damages is X, Y, and Z, and this is how it gets calculated. And, I think you and I discussed, you know, previously problems with damages calculations and, you know, how they changed the law in 1995 in the United States, you know, to calculate damages and securities cases in a certain way that benefits the defendants and really harms the potential plaintiffs. And people are outraged when I describe this to them. They're like, well, I don't understand, but I, but I lost the money, you know, <laughs> why can't I get it back? I said, because that's not the way Congress wrote the law. And if you don't like it, you've got to write your congressman. They're like, well, this is outrageous. You know, I don't understand. It is outrageous, but that's the law they passed. <laughs> There's nothing we can do about it. And it was a, it was a law, well, I was going to say written by Republicans. It was actually written by lobbyists to Republicans, <laughs> passed by Republicans. And, you know, some people come in the office are Republicans. And they're like, I can't believe they, they passed that law. I'm like, well, mm. you, know, you voted for them. So. <laughs> Yeah, you should write them a letter and tell them why you're not happy. But uh, we can't really change, you know, the laws as they're passed. And sometimes people are just out of luck. And you know, it's it's very unfortunate to have to explain that to them, and they're very unhappy when you do explain it to them. But it's, sometimes nothing can be done. Yeah, and uh, it's it's been a harsh lesson for me as well. So, uh, second to last question, you brought up at the beginning the idea of litigation funding. And I've actually seen a number of business plans, and there are some businesses which appear to be extraordinarily profitable. Perhaps you could take, you know, it's standing on one foot in one sentence or less, but or briefly explain what litigation funding is and what kind of interface your firm has had with litigation funding companies. How has it changed your business or helped it or hurt it? Sure. So just, uh, I guess, as an initial matter, we have really no business. I mean, I know a bunch of litigation funders, but we've never used them in a case. So we've had no business dealings with them on any particular cases uh, that we're involved in. So just, you know, and, and I can't do this in, you know, three sentences or fewer. So yeah, I get that. Sorry. <laughs> it may take a few more, but uh, the way litigation funding works is that uh, people with very deep pockets go to law firms that have cases and they say, we will help fund your case. 
you know, in a nutshell, as simply as I can put it, they're loaning money to the law firm and it's essentially securitized by a particular case. So it's not, it's not like when a law firm may, for instance, have a bank line of credit and, you know, a contingency firm is not like a, what we call a, you know, Wall Street or white shoe firm, you know, the, the checks don't come in every month. You know, the, the payment flow is uneven. So sometimes you'll dip into a, a bank loan to get you, you know, for a month or two months till you get the next fee coming in, you know, whatever it may take. A litigation funder is different than that. So a litigation funder loans you money, but unlike the bank where they just get paid back as soon as they can from the fee from any case, litigation funder will say, we're funding you for the XYZ case. And when that fee comes in, we basically get the money off the top uh, of that fee. Or, or, you know, the agreements can be any, any way they're structured, you know, and the funder will say, you know, we'll, we'll guarantee you, you don't have to pay back a certain amount, but we'll get, you know, X amount of the fees, you know, if it's a you know, non-recourse loan, it, they can be structured you know, any way, you know, it's a contract between two parties. So any way the funder and the law firm wants to do it, but it will be case specific for an individual case. So the funder will look at that case, make their own evaluation and say, oh, we really think that you have a great case uh, against XYZ. You know, we recognize that you may need some, you know, extra extra funding to get to the to the finish line on that case because it's an expensive case. You know, they're you know they're, they're fighting, you know, to the last uh, last drop of blood, whatever. And uh, like I said, basically a contract worked out between the funder and the law firm with regard to a specific case, and it can be structured however those two parties want to structure. But you have not yet funded any kind of litigation or taken an early payment on litigation that your firm has done? Uh, no, we have not. We, we are uh, so far what we call you know, self-funded, <laughs> meaning that you know, we use our capital reserves and, you know, and or you know, the bank loan if, if we ever you know, get to the point where we may need that, but we've never gotten into the you know, private litigation funding space yet. Yeah, it's an interesting space, uh, although um, it's just so weird the kinds of assets that can be funded. So the last question for you is that you went to Notre Dame and of course now the most recent member of the Supreme Court went to Notre Dame. You may not be on the same side of the left-right divide, but as a graduate of Notre Dame, perhaps you could provide some commentary, insight, thoughts about the latest addition to the Supreme Court of the United States, Amy Coney Barrett. You know, I have to be honest, you know, I don't think I've ever read a single one of her opinions when she was, you know, on the circuit court. So, you know, I, I really can't comment on her you know, jurisprudence or her opinions or her writing ability or anything like that. You know, just reading about her, you know, she certainly seems qualified credentially for the Supreme Court. So, you know, she seems, like I said, just based on stuff I've read about her, you know, intellectually, you know, able uh, to do the work of the Supreme Court. And also just based on what I've read about her, I have no expectation she will ever issue an opinion that, you know, will be uh, any great help to me or my clients. <laughs> but maybe I'll be surprised. Who knows? Somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been more likely to. Exactly. But, you know, sometimes right. people, you know, when they get on the Supreme Court, I mean, I don't know if she will. I don't know if she won't. I mean, I don't know anything about her. Like I said, yeah. 
we'll, we'll, we'll see what, what her opinions bring when, when she starts writing me. I think that I, I was extremely impressed with the way her confirmation, her intellectual ability on the confirmation hearings. And even though I'm a product, one could say, of Ivy League, and I guess Notre Dame is in a certain way Ivy League, but it's not on the East Coast or the West Coast of the United States. And so I, I just like that. I think that it's not healthy for the Republic when, you know, most of the justices or most of the people who run the country come from about three different institutions. And so the more distributed it is, the better. But it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Brian. Thank you so much. I would just tell the listeners that, including pauses and what have you, it probably works out at an hour and a half at least of Brian Murray's time that he's very kindly offered for free in this case. But believe me, if you had to go and hire somebody of his caliber, you would be many thousands of dollars short by the end of it with a lot of value added in the process. But lawyers are highly trained, know an awful lot, and are highly compensated for good reason. And I feel very lucky that you're willing to spend the time with us. Last word to you, Brian. <laughs> Last word to me. Uh, the only thing I'll add is that I think you have enraged, if not outraged, a sizable number of people on the East Coast by equating Notre Dame with the Ivy League. Because if there's one thing <laughs> uh, Ivy League people will point out is that you know Notre Dame is not Ivy League, and they're very, very <laughs> like that. Well, for, you know, and uh, from my perspective, I, I actually not living in the United States, but especially with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I, in my mind, it's the same, it's the same general kind of, you know, if somebody says they went to Notre Dame or to Duke, it's like they went to Harvard or to Yale, even though in the American mind, that probably means something very, very different. Uh, but it depends on the American mind, believe me. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Brian, and thank you for your insights. And I, I think that the um, Robin Hood shareholders will not be very happy, but so be it. Well, that is unfortunate. I agree, but <laughs> it is what it is. We talked about it.